Hello and welcome to The Landed Podcast. I'm John Montgomery, co-founder of Landed, a travel company specializing in tailor-made journeys throughout Latin America and the Antarctic. At Landed, we're devoted to exploring these regions, searching out exceptional experiences and locations for our clients. The Landed Podcast profiles some of our favorite places and brings you conversations with friends we've made along the way, explorers, artists, and visionaries. If you're a repeat listener, welcome back. If you're new to the show, thanks for joining us. Senator William Harrison Frist, MD, is the chair of the Nature Conservancy's Global Board of Directors. He and his wife, Tracy Roberts Frist, travel the world advocating for on-the-ground solutions to thorny ecological challenges. They're helping lead the way to a future where people and nature can thrive together. The Nature Conservancy, or TNC, is a global nonprofit. With more than a million members and a staff of over 400 scientists, TNC is arguably the world's most wide-reaching and successful environmental organization. Senator Frist represented Tennessee in the U.S. Senate from 1994 to 2007 and served as Senate Majority Leader from 2003 to 2007. As promised during his first campaign, he left the Senate after two terms. Senator Frist is a heart and lung transplant surgeon As the founder of the Vanderbilt Multi-Organ Transplant Center, he performed more than 150 heart and lung transplants. He's led volunteer, medical, and emergency response missions across the globe. In addition to his work for the Nature Conservancy, Senator Frist devotes his time and talents to nonprofits working to provide health care, alleviate poverty, and improve education. He's a pilot, an author, an entrepreneur, a marathoner, and a grandpa. In those rare moments when they're sitting still, he and Tracy enjoy caring for the horses, sheep, dogs, donkeys, and other critters at their home near the confluence of Browns Creek and the Harpeth River outside the town of Franklin, Tennessee. Thank you for this. How do I address you first? I don't want to seem insolent. It's uh, Billy, Billy. Is, is if you knew me up until about 17 years of age, and then Bill. And then doctor, because that's what I took a, an oath to to, uh-huh. to do. And then senator. But I think Bill's probably the best way. There was a fristy period in your life also. Uh, you know, there was, uh, actually. The former president of the United States kind of took that name on, and, and he gave everybody, President Bush gave everybody a title, and that was it. You want to uh, paint the picture of where we are, where we're sitting today, and... Yeah, and, and indeed, we're, as you can hear, we're outside, and we're in Middle Tennessee, about 25 miles southwest of Nashville. It's on Old Natchez Trace, first of all, just to kind of keep coming down to the, the setting itself. And it is um, a historic site, an ancient site, where, oh, about 100 yards from me over your shoulder there are Indian mounds, um, and they're actually temple mounds of a culture called the Mississippian culture. And related to the Adena? Is that a separate culture? No, it's a totally, well to, totally separate, totally separate. The Mississippian culture is a, a culture from about 800 A.D. to about 1300 A.D. that um, resided throughout the southeast, but especially in this Cumberland, the Cumberland River. There's a Harpeth River, as we sit here, about 200 yards away. The Harpeth River feeds into the Cumberland, and there were about 40 of these... Um, indigenous people villages anywhere from a thousand to three thousand people all along the river 
And this is called Old Town, bringing us to right where we're sitting now. Um, it's Old Town, not because we gave it that name, um, uh, but because the indigenous people called it an old town where our Native Americans, which uh, would be Choctaw or Chickasaw or East of here Cherokee, they found an old town here back 500 years ago. And that old town was from 400 years before that. And that culture, the Mississippian culture, um, had left here and vacated it for about 200 years before what we now consider Native Americans come in. You are currently serving as the chairman of the Global Board of the Nature Conservancy. Nature Conservancy is the largest conservation organization, I think, anywhere. And I think you operate in something like more than 70 countries. And yeah. that's a three-year term that began when, October? October. 22? Yeah. yeah, just last year, about a year ago. But you've been a member of the boards for about 10 years now, maybe eight or eight or nine years. And you were previously a vice chair. Yeah. Yeah, the Nature Conservancy... Um, we gravitated to because after I'd finished a, a period in the Senate, I wanted to spend the next 10, 15, 20, or 30 years with a, an organization, a conservation organization that had global reach. And the Nature Conservancy, um, as you said, is about 79 countries, all 50 states and several territories, has about 5,000 staff people uh, around the world. And over time, has conserved about 130 million acres uh, around the world. Um, the neat things about it, from my standpoint, are that it is very science-based. We have more scientists working with the Nature Conservancy, employed by the Nature Conservancy, um, than any other conservation group in the world. In fact, if you look at the Nature Conservancy, we have about 900 scientists that are with us. And if you added up all the other conservation, or the next four biggest conservation groups in the United States, that's more than double the number of scientists they have totally. So it's science-based. And secondly, the attractive thing to, to us is the fact that for conservation, it involves people. So it's not just planetary health or not just conserving a species or a tree or focusing on just biodiversity, but it takes all of that and ties it into people, the well-being of people and this relationship between conservation and people and planetary health and individual health, the health of you and me and our families all sitting together was something that means a lot to us. Not that conservation for conservation's sake is not important, but it's just for us to spend our time there. And then the third big thing that, that is really neat about it is the fact that it takes things to scale. It starts locally. It starts farms like this, um, landscapes, uh, biodiversity sites locally, but then scales them to the community level, to the state level, to the larger regional level, and to the global level. And going to scale because of its size, uh, the resources, the millions of members who, of millions of people who are members were able to take things to scale, um, probably to a greater extent than any other conservation group in the world. I became familiar with Nature Conservancy maybe 20 years ago, and I was attracted at that time by their market-based approach, which was, this land needs to be preserved. Why don't we just buy it, and we'll preserve it? Is that still a large component of how the Nature Conservancy works, that they 
privatize areas for protection? Yes, in, in part, although, um, and again, it's about 72 years old, uh, the, the Nature Conservancy, so it has a long, evolving history. And the history started about uh, strict conservation of land, but involving people, and would go in and either be um, uh, purchasers of land, private sector playing market rates, or contributions would be given to the Nature Conservancy. And that purpose is still important today. We're one of the largest nonprofit landowners in the, in the country. But in addition to that, that mission has moved much more into promoting biodiversity and then extended into climate change. And so now the mission is much, much greater than just the, the land conservation itself. But when you say market-based, one of the things that we do is not just conserve a piece of land and keep it separate, but we want people to um, uh, recreate there, to, to use the rivers, uh, to do the hiking, to even have hunting on the land in, in, in appropriate places, uh, to do sustain, sustainable forestry and do logging, to have people have livelihoods off the land with respect for the biodiversity of the land throughout. That ties the community into the protection of the land, that gives them a vested interest in protecting it? Yes, and that's the key part because uh, it makes it sustainable. And this whole idea of planetary health and promoting biodiversity, and at the same time paying attention to the needs of people, but doing it in a sustainable way, both for people's health as well as for the health and, and biodiversity of, of the land it, itself. You know, a great example is a recent project that is uh, um, primarily in Virginia, but also Tennessee and Kentucky, and it's called the Cumberland Project, and it involves a huge part of Appalachia, central Appalachia mainly itself, but 230,000 acres that were in private hands, much of it owned by lumber companies uh, 15, 20 years ago. But now in a, it's a regional approach, a multi-state approach, and with that, we are offering the opportunity for people to make um, investments in that land, get a return from that land, and people who live in the Appalachian region all of a sudden have uh, livelihoods. Uh, they might put a rafting group through the rivers there. Um, they might do sustainable um, logging on that land itself. But this whole integration of people, um, economic well-being, and biodiversity coming together. And that's a sustainable model. Uh, other models simply are not sustainable at scale. This is a model that we've seen work very well in Central America. Groups that operate eco-lodges or hotels in remote locations will buy enough land that there's uh, a corridor that's meaningful to the wildlife. And they'll hire ex-poachers, um, or people who ran cattle on that land and give them training in, in forestry or in wildlife conservation or in uh, biological census work. And uh, through that, they've been able to preserve the land um, and also provide new avenues of, of education and employment for the local communities. And it's, it's really, uh, served what they consider a triple bottom line, which is the ecological, the social, and the economic function of the lodge or the, the resort. Yeah, I, I think that's, if you really look to the future, and we as a world have set 
goals for um, climate change, biodiversity in 2030. And 2030 is just, you know, six years, seven years from now, so not very far. If you start looking out beyond 2030, you really do have to look at its sustainable models that begin locally and then can be taken to scale throughout regions themselves. And I think that ultimately is the only model because it pays attention to, to species, to biodiversity, to land, to water, to climate, but also to people and their livelihood and their ability to, to grow and their ability to provide for their children and their families. And these are the sort of integrated models that I believe we need to focus on really over the next decade, but also well into the future. You, you were in Belize, I think in, in May, observing work to preserve and sustain mangrove habitats and the Mesoamerican Barrier Reef, which is the, the second largest coral reef system in the world. I think you traveled with us to Belize last year where you stayed in the Placencia area. What could you tell me about the Nature Conservancy's role in the Belize uh, coral reef system or the coastal mangroves? You know, you're exactly right. It was a, a year ago that um, through you arranged our first trip um, to Belize and at that time met with uh, the Nature Conservancy people. It was uh, just coming out of COVID and it was the first time that the TNC or the Nature Conservancy group, all indigenous people, um, uh, from Belize had gotten together. And, and on that trip, we, we really explored a lot of the things you and I were just talking about, where we went with a, a women's group that, predominantly women, really all women uh, at, this, at that point, um, uh, who were engaged in seaweed uh, farming. And um, with that, they were able to both hire women locally go out and do the actual planting and the harvesting and then bring it back and actually begin to sell that and make products and make cosmetics for that. And that's just one example. Um, actually visited with them again, We, uh, Tracy, my wife, who is also involved with the Nature Conservancy on, on the board of the Tennessee, where we are, uh, board of the TNC. Um, and on that tour, we observed a whole bunch of neat things. Uh, you mentioned the Mesoamerican reef, uh, now the largest living reef in the world, um, with with what's happened with the Great Barrier Reef, right. and yeah, we've lost probably a fourth, maybe even a third of the Great Barrier Reef. Yeah. yeah. So what what is pretty neat now with with uh, Belize, and it's the first time that the Nature Conservancy actually engaged in something that was innovative and creative and is going to scale is that we will do it's what's called a debt conversion and this is big and it's at scale but it's worth spending a, a couple of minutes on so the nature conservancy will come in and put the plan together the belize the country itself will have a debt a sovereign a national debt just like we have a debt here in the united states and we, the TNC, on behalf of other organizations, will come in and say, we'll take a quarter of that debt that you have today as a nation. And as a nation, when you have a debt and you're paying interest on it, it's taking resources out that could otherwise be spent on development or job creation or better water systems. Um, um, and therefore, that you want to reduce that debt. 
And then we, through what are called blue bonds, will finance that. We call blue bonds or green bonds, but blue bonds will finance that debt, refinance it on the global markets, and that will save about, say, $200 um, million over time. Does TNC guarantee that debt? It's guaranteed. It's really interesting because TNC, on behalf of the United States, but also on behalf of the interdevelopmental banks and these banks that are global banks that will guarantee it, will come in and reduce the interest rate that's paid, will save $200 million. What the government of Belize has to do is take $100 million of that, reduce their debt. Another $100 million they have to do, and they don't have to do it, but they agreed to do 20 items on conservation. And that would include the, uh, the mangroves. It would include the coral reef. It would include the Belizean forest itself. And those 20 things are scientifically based things that if we know we do over time, over 10 years or over 20 years, we'll maximize biodiversity. And when you maximize biodiversity, you maximize uh, fishing, you maximize tourism, you maximize uh, the, the, uh, using the forest both for, for micro and macroeconomic um, uh, advantages coming in. And Belize was the first place in the world uh, who had a $500 million debt conversion that has now become a tool that the global markets have um, uh, to promote biodiversity, conservation, address climate change, uh, promote um, um, cleaner oceans and, and fisheries. And since that time, that, again, this was just two years ago, uh, uh, one has been done in Barbados for about $150 million. Mm. A third one has been done in Ecuador, not just by TNC, but by other groups uh, as well for $1.6 billion. So for the first time, because of the leadership of a, of a country like Belize, working with the Nature Conservancy and other partners, um, uh, has introduced a mechanism by which billions of dollars can go into conservation that otherwise wouldn't. And that takes us back to why TNC, why the Nature Conservancy is important to us. Because you can take these local efforts, mm -hmm. going all the way back to the, the women who were you know, traveling an hour and a half out to work with the, 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 the seaweed and the farm it, how that kind of program taken to scale can bring hundreds of millions of dollars into conservation around the world. So TNC pioneers programs in one country finds out what's successful. When it's successful, they can launch that to all 79, 78 countries where they operate. We've seen that with the water funds program that you worked on in Quito. Um, you were recently, well, you recently returned from Ecuador and you were in, in Quito. You were in the Galapagos, I think for Tracy's birthday. And then you went to Reserva Palaguio and Hacienda Zuleta. Can you, can you tell us about the Nature Conservancy's Water Funds pilot program that started in Quito? Yeah, and, and um, we had an unbelievable time experience and learned a huge amount and left the country with just huge respect for the people there, for the culture there, for the, the industriousness, uh, the discipline, um, uh, of the people and left with a real sense of time and place that leaves us very encouraged. You mentioned the, the water fund story. Um, another great example of where the Nature Conservancy will innovate 
and work with partners in a way of developing a project that, if it works, can go to scale, just like we talked about in, in Belize uh, with the debt conversions. And the other story is this. Um, in Quito, yeah, up until about 2000, uh, the water there uh, was not clean. And the city itself now, probably 2.5 million, 2.6, 2.7 million people there, simply didn't have water. You had the Andes Mountains, which are a few hours away. But by the time the water came down uh, to Quito, it had been contaminated by whether it's cattle or livestock right. and the like. So the Nature Conservancy went in and bought 20,000 acres of um, of oh, land oh. in the Andes Mountains. That's exactly right. And... and um, uh, cleaned it up, in essence cleaned it up, but through riparian programs and uh, the plantings and and keeping the, the livestock out of the streams with appropriate watering places. Um, developed partners on that land, and that's the water supply, that's the ecosystem um, for the water supply going to Quito. And then that doubled with partners, and now there's six partners today over the last 20 years, it's developed into a huge, huge program that supplies most of the water to Quito today for those 2.6 million people that is clean water. Uh, the program is called FONAG, F-O-N-A-G, and that particular program involves the government, who now taxes the water just a bit to make it sustainable okay. and appropriate. Uh, it involves private industry who are coming in. Uh, they may be nonprofits um, or, or for-profit but that partnership, the TNC, the Nature Conservancy, has receded just to be one of those six partners. And that water program today, hugely successful, um, healthier population, promoting tourism, um, things like lack of clean water in the world is probably the number one killer of kids under the age of five. So you don't see that in Quito uh, today. That water project, again, started in 2000, and now we are 23 years later has been taken to scale uh, around the world, and there are now about 50 water projects that the Nature Conservancy is partnering in, but now there are hundreds of water projects like that around the world. 20 countries, I think. Yeah, in 20, 20 different countries, and Tracy and I were in Kenya a couple of years ago, a big, big water project there, uh, very similar to that. But the point is it was all based on this one model that started small, that started with some land, and then started with the partnership and then bringing in good governance and then showing that it worked. Uh, people became healthier, tourism picked up, and then it was shown you could take it to scale. Well, do you know the origin of that idea? Was it Ecuadorian scientists that came to TNC with that idea? I don't, I don't know. It would be really interesting, and I'll bet you the story is that uh, TNC was on the ground and that it was Ecuadorians sitting around the table uh, with some of the expertise of people from the TNC who can draw upon the experience, not just in the United States, but in the other 70 countries where we have a presence. And I'll bet you it was a partnership, people just coming together, and it wasn't a single idea. And I'm sure back in 2000, Nobody could have predicted the, the grand success of both that program, but also the impact it's had around the world. You, you talked about the ingenuity of the people in Quito and, and how impressive that was. Um, but you were in Galapagos. Um, you'd been there before, but you spent some time this time with our friends Reina and Roberto. 
Um, what impressed you on this last trip about the conservation efforts in Galapagos? You know, the Galapagos has, has become uh, a real epicenter of, of thought leadership and sort of practical implementation of uh, conservation in its purest sense. And from the, the moment you sat down uh, in the airport, um, the attention and the focus all becomes um, uh, uh, this alignment of everybody, everybody about conservation. And it's biodiversity. It is the fact that um, uh, whether it's disease or contamination is just a plane ride away. The, the fact that everybody is so focused on it is what impresses you, or what impresses one, I think, the most uh, initially. Um, and then you mentioned uh, Raina and R Roberto. I think the thing that struck Tracy and I most about this most recent trip uh, are the people. And the people who, like the two of them, who have conservation, um, respect for the environment, um, part of their blood, part of their, their spirit, part of their heart, um, in a way that you just don't see in a lot of places around the world. And I think it was reflected in them, but also the people throughout. We spent a lot of time, as everybody does, on, on the water there. Uh, we spent time um, exploring, whether it was by bicycle or by hiking, uh, the areas uh, around it. This uniform focus on, on conservation is, is unique. The whole Darwin story is one that captures the world's imagination. So. Uh, obviously, being able to see the unique uh, species there is a real pleasure because you realize you're not going to see them anywhere else in the world. But this integration of, of uh, a commitment to conservation uh, is made even, I think, more real today by people's understanding around biodiversity and the impact on climate change and the importance of waters and the importance of oceans around it. About a third of the world's monitored fisheries are overfished, and we've already lost about a third of the mangroves and half of the coral reefs. Um, many marine species, sharks, whales, other pelagics, turtles, could face extinction. The response to this at the UN level has been the adoption of the Treaty of the High Seas. What will be the impact of that treaty? Well, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure how many people are uh, aware of the treaty who are listening to us now. And so I'm glad you brought it up because the impact is, is vast. It's huge. Um, the Treaty of the High Seas, which, again, was just signed by, by all the signatories uh, here in the last couple of months, um, has implications both in the next the short term and in the long term. It does several things. Number one... Um, it requires action, and the action falls in several areas. We'll see that action in cleaner oceans uh, today um, and in the future. I think it was last year, there are about 17 or 18 million metric tons of plastic that is dumped into the oceans um, uh, globally. And I should add that this treaty um, addresses about two-thirds of the oceans in, in the world, not all the oceans, but about two-thirds, a huge impact. So this is an agreement when you look at the globe and you recognize the importance of the oceans. And um, 
of the fact that we're going to see cleaner. There are obligations. People are, are signing action items to help bring two-thirds of the world's oceans cleaner. That's number one. Number two, a, a big part of the treaty was sustainable uh, fisheries itself. Right now, it's estimated that two-thirds of the world today is in oceans are overfished, are not fished in a sustainable way. Two-thirds of it can't be sustained. And you mentioned the loss of species and the loss of biodiversity of the ocean, um, the rich biodiversity of the ocean today supported by coral reefs. It's rapidly disappearing. So for the first time, we have over 160 nations coming together, signing and pledging to address the lack of sustainable fishing um, uh, over uh, the oceans. And the third big area is, is uh, climate and climate change. And uh, the fact that globally the world is hotter now than it's ever been, people are beginning to pay a lot more attention to it. So what's interesting about the oceans is that of all the, the uh, emissions, the bioemissions that occur, that impact this global warming. And there are other things besides bioemissions, but bioemissions are number one. Um, that are affecting global warming. About two-thirds of the heat that is trapped in this core around the world is reabsorbed into the oceans. Mm -hmm. And so what we're, what's happening there, the fact that you have global warming, this extra surplus heat that, that we're not feeling, because we're feeling the net impact of that heat, is actually going into the oceans. And that's a good thing. The flip side of that is we have the oceans warmer now than they've ever been in history. And where 98% of all life and biodiversity occurs in the oceans, we're having that loss of species, which you mentioned, that loss of biodiversity, that loss of coral reef, that, that, that loss of plankton, which begins the life cycle. And that's the number three in terms of what this treaty will be addressing over time. And it'll be addressing it by a, having some addressing of the coral reefs, by cleaning up the pollution that is, I've already mentioned, a big part of that pollution is plastic over time, all of which will allow this, uh, it will actually slow this warming of the oceans, which if not slowed, will have this sort of incessant, interminable loss of, of biodiversity. We're talking about, I should have mentioned this in my sort of list of three, I should probably add four, is that the, the waters around the countries, coastal countries, is responsibility of that country itself. So what goes on in that country, yeah. and whether it's five miles out or 10 miles or 50 miles out, it varies around the world. Um, that doesn't change. That, that's, you know, these countries who are polluters or plastic um, um, contributors have to address it internally. This treaty does not affect that. This is the high seas, which is beyond the, beyond the national what would you say, water? Yeah, the territorial waters. Territorial waters, yeah. And that's what, that's what the key is about it, because the, the, um, that has never been regulated in the past, uh, but it doesn't relieve the responsibility of the individual nations to take care of their own territorial waters. The Galapagos has struggled in recent years with um, uh, massive fishing fleets coming in to encroach upon its borders and even sending in drone fishing platforms uh, that are radio controlled come in, use drag nets or drift nets and, and capture uh, <laughs> a lot of the, the food stock, especially during the humble current times, and then drag that outside the protected waters and harvest the fish. Um, 
Was that something that was discussed while you were in Ecuador? You know, we, um, Tracy and I, and the Nature Conservancy had to, um, had the opportunity of meeting with the person responsible for environmental policy there. Actually, he's just, he's just moved. And it was exciting because he'd been involved with the Nature Conservancy for the previous 15 years as we um, uh, developed a lot of the maritime and the uh, marine uh, conservation efforts. What was really exciting in, in our discussion, and it's we're not all the way through it, but the fact that a more regional approach is being taken with the surrounding countries. Uh, because as you said, whether it's, and I think a lot of the, the, the scavenging uh, comes from China and from these Chinese trawlers who are taking up right outside of the territorial waters and as you mentioned are, are taking fish in in a, in a non-sustainable way. But what is happening now is that the four countries surrounding that whole region there of Ecuador are coming together for the first time and beginning to address the issue in an organized way. And I'm not sure if that treaty's actually been signed. It had not been signed when we were there, but was about to be signed. I'm a believer that done right, sustainably, small scale, uh, tourism can be a powerful force for conservation. Is that compatible with TNC's vision? Yes, and as I said, this intersection of planetary health with, with human health and well-being uh, puts it right in the sweet spot. And tourism is probably on the, the leading edge, the cutting edge, and, and you and, and we spend a lot of time in the whole world of ecotourism, which is, which is a good description of it, but it's not just the ecosystem lodge itself. It is this, this whole... A more integrated system of tourism and livelihood of bringing people in who can contribute to conservation. The important thing is to set up systems where they're integrated and mutually respected, and that takes nonprofit and for-profit and business and philanthropic organizations coming together, sitting around the table and align over certain goals. And if the alignment of those goals are to have a sustainable ecosystem a hundred years from now. We know that we need to act now, and tourism is beneficial because it brings new people in. It allows them to appreciate the, the beauty, the majesty, the biodiversity, but ultimately the importance as we address these larger, even more existential issues of, of climate and climate change. You know, it's interesting, Tracy and I have been uh, committed to nature conservation, and um, and um, animals and uh, uh, farms and to a, a life of, of uh, respecting um, the environment and the world around us. Um, and in our travel, uh, have had a great opportunity of working with um, Aaron in terms of putting together uh, plans and trips and journeys and programs that put it all together that allow us with our, our wants and our needs and our commitment to respecting the land and respecting the animals and respecting the environment around us um, in a way that, that we become immersed, that we can explore, 
that we recognize our, our oneness with nature as we go around the world. So whether it is in um, Ecuador or our trip in Ecuador to Galapagos or whether it is Quito or the Andes um, uh, Mountains or whether it is Belize, um, the areas that Aaron has arranged for us have been pitch perfect in allowing us to address this oneness with nature of individuals and having a great time along the way. You were instrumental in getting the PEPFAR program approved under President Bush. And that, that program has led to millions of people's health being improved and protected, not just in Africa, but also in the Americas, Guyana, uh, Haiti. What lessons have you learned from the PEPFAR experience that you've carried forward into your work in TNC? Yeah, PEPFAR, which is uh, the President's Emergency uh, Program for AIDS Relief, is a program that um, we passed in 2003 under the leadership of President Bush um, that changed the course of history. Uh, there's no question about it. And President Bush's leadership, I was majority leader at the time, so I had to come up both with the money for it with the Senate and the House of Representatives and write the legislation, but it really was President Bush. And at the time, there were about three. And, and Condi. And Condi Rice. And, and, but not that many more people. There were about five people who knew about the program initially. And that was it. Until 2003, State of the Union message, uh, President Bush said, I'm going to make the single largest commitment made by any country or any president in the history of mankind to reverse a disease and a condition. At that time, there were about three million people dying a year of HIV AIDS, and nobody was doing very much about it. Uh, the United States, the American taxpayer, President Bush, um, made a commitment to, to address uh, HIV AIDS head on globally, not just in the United States, but, but globally. And with that, every president subsequent to President Bush have supported the program. And because of that program and the generosity of the American people, it was a Republican, it was Republican-led, but it was supported by Democrats, independents, Republicans, all coming together with the American people who paid the bill. And um, with that, history has been changed. There are now 25 million people alive today because of that one single act, that one single commitment that otherwise would not be alive uh, today. And I, it comes back to the generosity of the, of the American people um, a, a spirit of not just it being about us here at home, but people around the world. So a hugely successful program that shows that government working in partnership with scientists and pharmaceutical companies and nonprofits globally can make a huge difference in the course of history. People have the idea that we, as Americans, maybe spend too much on foreign aid, but in actuality it's, it's around or less than 1% of the federal budget. Yeah, that's right. If you ask people, um, when I was in the Senate, I would ask people and do surveys, and um, people would guess, uh, on average, that about 15 to 20 percent of all of our budget in America, in the United States, would go to foreign aid. And as you said, it's uh, 1 percent, and less than a quarter of 1 percent goes to public health issues like we just talked about. So. Um, we don't put very much in, in the, in the uh, as a percent of our GDP, but it has a huge impact in the health and, and well-being of people around the world, their productivity, and most importantly, it gives them hope 
and that comes back um, and affects our security right here at home. You've worked on legislation involving clean water, nuclear nonproliferation, prescription drug benefits for seniors, research programs to protect against bioterrorism, stem cell research, um, all in the Senate. Now you've spent close to 10 years in the Nature Conservancy. Thank you for your service. Can I just ask you what what is motivating you? You know, I think it's, it is so basic to all of us to want to be a part of something that's much bigger than ourselves. And um, I've been lucky in many ways to have had uh, two parents um, growing up who were committed to service, dad being a physician and, and my mother very involved in the local community addressing vulnerable populations. So with that initial uh, blessing in growing up, I have strived to be a part of something bigger than than myself, and that has taken me to medicine and the transplant world, and then and then to Washington D.C. and then becoming involved in global health, and then now involved with things like um, biodiversity and climate change today. So that's it. It's not it's not uh, too complicated, really but have been blessed to be in, in positions to have that opportunity to make the world a little better place. Well, then our thanks to Tommy and Dorothy, too. Yeah, yes, indeed. Thank you. Thank you for the time. It's great to be with you. Good. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. If you'd like to know more about custom travel in Latin America and the Antarctic, reach out to us at landedtravel.com. Since 2006, Landed's success has been built on word-of-mouth referrals. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a minute to rate the podcast or share it with a friend. Thank you for listening.